Hi, everyone. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Welcome to Yoga Birth Babies, a podcast produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. We will be diving into everything prenatal yoga, birth, and baby-related, hoping to inspire, educate, and empower you through your journey into motherhood. Thank you for listening. Hi, guys. Thank you so much for joining me on Yoga Birth Babies. I'm Deb Blaschenberg, and we are going to talk about one of my favorite topics, the pelvic floor and the transverse abdominal muscles. So we have Lindsay Vestal here to talk about that. So she is from, she owns the Functional Pelvis. It's a private practice specializing in pelvic floor therapy, and she does house calls for pre- and postnatal women. She graduated from NYU with a Master's of Science in Occupational Therapy and has dedicated her career to empowering women to help find relief from conditions such as bowel and urinary incontinence, constipation and pelvic pain, prolapse and pre- and postnatal complications. And she's trained with Herman and Wallace Institute, the Maitland-Diane Lee's Integrated System Model, and received specialized biofeedback training for the pelvic floor. And Lindsay is also a contributor to the Well-Rounded New York, and she's just selected as a recipient for the Women's Net Female Entrepreneur Grant. And she is found here in New York City with her husband and her two children, Avery at four years old and Liam at two. I'm so happy to have Lindsay here. Thank you so much. Deb, thank you so much for inviting me. And I just have to not only thank you for this opportunity, but also Thank you for creating the community that you have oh, with the Prenatal Yoga Center. I did prenatal yoga through both my pregnancies and can speak firsthand to just how amazing it was. I met some of my best friends to this day there. Uh, we still get together for play dates. Maybe some wine dates in there too. As they are needed. Uh, <laughs> Very balance. <laughs> it's all about balance. Uh, and then you know, the prolific blogs and podcasts that you do just share so much needed information with women pregnant postpartum and that's that's an amazing thing so thank you for having me thank you i really appreciate that yeah community is really the foundation of our studio i'm so glad that you're still friends with some of your mom friends from there yeah all right so let's jump in all right so here we go can you tell me a little bit about the work you do with your clients i would love to talk about that so as you mentioned i've got two little ones so both my personal and my professional Uh, understanding of how important the pelvic floor is to everyday function um, comes from both of those perspectives. And even though it's so essential, I often discover that women don't know much about these muscles. Mm -hmm. This is kind of funny, right? Because they are just like any other muscle in the body. So I think women are a little shy about talking about the pelvic floor. You know, it's an area that could societally be a little um, taboo to talk about. That's exactly right. Um, And so while they're like any other muscle in the body, if you have an injury or need rehab to a muscle, let's say something like your shoulder, you may not hesitate to seek PT to rehab it, but I don't find this is always the case with the pelvic floor, but they should. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's truly the undercarriage of the body providing really important functions to vital organs above it. And by nature, as you, as we just said, it it really um, has some pretty important and private functions. So mm-hmm. let's just do a really quick review of what those functions are. So elimination. Mm-hmm. Now this includes both getting, you know, our bowel bladder <laughs> function out as well as keeping it in. Mm-hmm. So for continence, sexual appreciation, organ protection, kind of keeping keeping what's above it supported, and of course for women birthing our babies. So I guess I always wonder, why is it something we don't understand more? And like you said, this part of our body has very intimate, cultural, 
uh, psychological, emotional associations. So it's taboo to talk about. Mm-hmm. So sometimes we don't. Well, you know, it's interesting. Even having taught this for as many years as I had, I don't think I really understand my pelvic floor or understood my pelvic floor until after my first child. When, where I, just to use the word that felt that comes to my head, my, I felt my pelvic floor was trashed. <laughs> and, and I didn't really understand its true significance and support until having to heal from that. That's right. But, and that, that, you know, is very common because it's a muscle we take for granted. It works for us until it doesn't. Until it doesn't, exactly. Right? And childbirth is often one of those cases where we sort of wake up and, and we become acquainted with our pelvic floor. <laughs> and I think that's a good thing. I think that's an empowering opportunity. Some women often say to me, so how's it going to be for my second or possibly my third? And I always answer, it is going to be so much stronger and more resilient because you know what? Now you know what it is. You now you know where it is. Now you know what it does. And how to use it. And how to use it. That's a huge opportunity. Um, one of the other things I want to bring up about sort of about the taboo nature of it is, is that, you know, issues with the pelvic floor are way more common than you think. Just mm-hmm. because we don't talk about it doesn't mean it's not happening so I've got some t- statistics oh, here that I don't just remember off the top of my head. So, of course, I brought some notes with me. 78% of women are unable to properly contract their pelvic floor muscles one year after having their baby. Wow. That's insane. I mean, I know that there is some level. I thought it was about 50% just from the feedback I get with my yeah. students. But, you know, they may not all of them speak up or even realize. That's exactly right. You know, um, some other really staggering <coughs> statistics are 9 million women in the United States have pelvic pain. Mm-hmm. And one in three women experience poor bladder control after childbirth. Wow. Um, and the other thing that's really fascinating is there's 14 pelvic floor muscles. Mm-hmm. 14. Right. Most of the people just think it's the vaginal muscles. Like, it's so much yeah. more. Yeah. And most of them are on the inside. So mm-hmm. let's say if you hurt your knee. Um, you can, we can watch the qual watch you walk to determine your quality of movement. We right. can go, okay, you know, you're limping, you're not extending your leg as far. It's not so easy with the pelvic floor. Uh, so we start talking about those functions, those basic function functions we talked about earlier to assess how it's going. So checking in with elimination, sex, you know, feeling, feeling of support. Um, this helps give context to these muscles, similar to how watching someone with a limp gives us information about how the knee or, is functioning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember working with a PT after Shay was born, and I was surprised how intimate it got. I yeah. mean, yeah. it was full-on in there giving, you know, biofeedback, but digital feedback, and yeah. it was, you know, any sense of um, privacy was lost. It was like, here we are. Like any other muscle. Yeah. And so I think that was one of the biggest reasons why I decided to do house calls. So I really think it's important to meet the woman where they are, mm-hmm. um, emotionally, physically. So sometimes the first session, we're talking. We're talking about their birth story. We're talking about what was like before you had your baby really developing a rapport, a relationship. And a trust. And a trust. So then we can go there. Mm-hmm. Then we can we can possibly <laughs> do some of the intimate things, uh, an internal exam is often part of a pelvic floor evaluation. Um, it's very gentle, or it's nothing with stirrups or speculum like right. you may have experienced in other appointments, an OB, et cetera. And, and that is also a way to find get into a window of the pelvic floor. So in addition to a questionnaire that goes into its functions, um, which I provide them with, it's also the assessment of, uh, I'm looking for things like endurance, coordination, um, and, and strength and release. 
Wow. Okay, cool. Let's start the basic and describe what happens to the pelvic floor for most women during and after pregnancy. Yeah. Yeah. So although the pelvis seems to be like a rigid circle of a bone, it's actually four separate bones. Uh, I think that's important to think about because when relaxin is secreted, the hormone that kind of helps the pelvic joints soften and open in preparation for childbirth Uh, These pelvic bones can feel unstable, contributing a lot to back pain, loss of balance, pelvic instability. Um, And the pelvis also includes a web of muscles, uh, ligaments, nerves. And during the pregnancy, the muscles of the pelvic floor are stressed, Mm -hmm. of course, especially later in the months as we continue to... Yeah, there's more weight. Exactly. When we're at our heaviest. Progesterone um, softening things, relaxing softening things, even estrogen is softening the the, um, the fascia. Yeah, everything's just absolutely. getting looser. And this is a wonderful thing, right? Well, we need that to get the baby out. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, but pregnancy can also alter the strength and the elasticity right. of our muscles and ligaments and nerves. Uh, and so this, in fact, can, can set the stage for some issues, uh, such as urinary and fecal incontinence for the postpartum women. Now, actually, during the birth itself, uh, the baby, you know, as we know, descends through the birth canal. Uh, dilation affects the bladder, the vagina, the urethra, as well as all of the muscles and nerves and ligaments. You know, remember, we said there's 14 muscles. Um, and the intense pressure and stretching of the vaginal canal can often cause nerve damage, uh, muscle weakness. And some other things that I'm often asked about are, so what are some factors? What are some things across the board that that we can kind of look at and, and see cause and effect. Prolonged second stage of labor, uh, use of forceps or vacuum delivery. My daughter was actually born via vacuum, so I can I can certainly speak to some complications there. The other thing that's important to think about is the main nerve in the pelvic floor supplies most of the structures maintaining pelvic support and continence. Um, and compression and stretching of this main nerve is often a risk factor. As a result, the sling-like components of the pelvic floor may fail to contract and elevate the sphincter pressure during a cough or sneeze. So that's the stress incontinence that so much of us As you're about. saying this, I'm doing my pelvic floor exercises. Yay! I'm like, oh, I didn't do them yet today. I got to keep that strong and trampoline-like. I seriously am. And I so have listeners, to say, please yeah. do your pelvic floor exercises right along with us. That's right. And I have to say, make your face like Debs. You guys can't see her right now, but she's calm, relaxed. There's not a lot of tension. <laughs> you know, I find it hilarious because, you know, I've been teaching this for years and there's always a certain look. And, you know, when we, te- as you <laughs> mentioned, like there's certain things when I teach the the basic awesome that I can see, even the transverse abdominals I can see. But I tell, you know, I tell them, I can't really see what's going on through pelvic floor except what's going on through face. <laughs> because some women completely relaxed. Others look a little constipated. Others look in pain. Others try to do it with their eyebrows and forehead. And so when I watch the class, I can get a sense of, do I have to back up yeah. and really talk about it? I've been known to bring that. out diagrams. I mean, like, I have the these woman huge posters. Own heart. <laughs> these huge posters. Because some of the women, and then I can tell there's a confusion usually. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I try to keep I the face that. relaxed. But yeah, it's one of the, it's, it's a harder, um, it's so minute in its tendencies. Yeah, it's so subtle. Yeah. So there's this um, episode of Sex in the City. Oh, the Kegel one. Right? <laughs> this, I always Samantha. take out that picture of Samantha when she's like, I'm doing them right now. And it looks like she's enjoying it a little too much. I know. But it gets yeah. the point across. <laughs> but that, I mean, it's great because it just tells women, do your pelvic floor as I am right now, as Lindsay's <laughs> reminding me to do so. <laughs> I'll do Sorry. it too. We, we, there we go. We're all doing it. All right. So we deviated a little. Anyway, let's come back to what we're chatting about. Perfect. 
So um, I've been pretty open about my struggle with my first birth. You know, it was a five-hour pushing stage. Mm. As you mentioned, that's definitely one of the contributing factors. Um, but I also believe a lot of that had to do that I was overly tight and imbalanced in the mm. pelvic floor. Mm-hmm. And I believe um, part of that had to do with my continuation and slight insanity about my spin <laughs> classes throughout my pregnancy. And which was really hilarious was my spin teacher always said, you know, most of my women that keep going have cesareans. And I heard that and thought, that's not going to be me. And it wasn't. But there was something that later clicked. So what are your thoughts on this about ex- certain exercise forms that can tighten or weaken <clears throat> the pelvic floor? Honestly, Deb, it's a really important question, and I think most exercises regimens have the ability to contribute to an overactive pelvic floor. Overactive pelvic floor is such an important topic, so I'm so glad you brought it up. Uh, Do I think that some forms of exercise can exacerbate it more than others? Sure, but I also think so much of it depends on the individual body. Their mechanics. And how much they do it. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe how much they do it. You know, but listen, you, I'm sure everyone that's listening has their, their own insanities. Their own, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So I always come back to the foundation of the pelvic floor, and that's the diaphragm. The diaphragm, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, it's, it's the king of the core. If, <clears throat> if you can ensure that the core is moving with the breath, this is one of the best things that you can do with the pelvic floor. So ask yourself whether you're breathing with your rib cage, not just your chest, <clears throat> expanding with the inhale in particular to ensure you're using the diagram, diaphragm and thereby encouraging the core system to be engaged, awake, um, <clears throat> and capable of movement through full range of motion and capable of supporting you. So breath holding, uh, using the chest exclusively, which is really more of a superficial breath, or keeping the belly button to spine, sort of abs. A lot of women do that very naturally. Yes. They're always saying, like, I'm just so used to engaging, engaging, engaging. Yeah. I, I credit the slight balance I must have to my singing because mm. as a singer, why we used to be a singer, you know, we're not taught to hold like that. You know, it's deep diaphragmatic breathing. Yeah. So, but there's so many women that either they're just so used to engage yeah. in their abdominals or are backwards breathers. Yes, yes. Which yes. also kind of astonishes me. So backwards breathers, you're saying that um, the... Instead of inhaling and letting the diaphragm drop and feeling that same release, because I think of the pelvic diaphragm and the respiratory diaphragm, they work in concert, kind of like jellyfish. As the beautiful respiratory diaphragm drops, the pelvic floor diaphragm gently stretches. And as the respiratory diaphragm engages, the pelvic floor lifts. And that's when you would think of engaging if you're doing pelvic floor work exactly. on the exhalation. But a lot of women will say... They inhale and they actually engage their abdominals in and they exhale and they slightly let it out. So that's I call that the opposite breathers. So we actually call that um, dyssynergic breathing. That's much more technical (laughs) than the opposite breather. (laughs) But it's just as accurate. And so dyssynergia, lack of synergy. Yeah. Right, And that can not only wreak havoc for our pelvic floor, but our respiratory system, our circulatory system, you know, you name it, even just rib, you know, rib function. Is that learned behavior? You know, that's a great question. I think, yes, because if we all look at our babies. I know. So right? I always go back to, like, look at your child when they're sleeping and they breathe. Their bellies just, I mean, many hours just staring at my yeah. child. Well, the other thing is when they poop, right? What's their position? They're yeah. sort of squatting down, you know, so so we'll get into healthy elimination <laughs> later. But, yeah, we can learn a lot from just watching our babies, watching our kids and, and sort of how, what their habits are.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So do you think if women are out there and they're pregnant, should they cut back on their spin classes or bar classes, which are so externally rotated, they come mm-hmm. in very yeah. tight in the piriformis? Like, because we're on yeah. the Upper West Side, we do get a lot of the dancers from you yes. know, ABT and City Ballet that come to us. Yes. And my focus with them is they do not need to pull up their pelvic floor. They're so lifted from, from dancing. Mm-hmm. So my focus with them is the relax and release and stretch. Yeah. And but because that external rotation has really tightened up the piriformis and the pelvic floor, are you finding that women that do like bar classes a lot do you find dysfunction there, or am I overgeneralizing? Honestly, yeah. honestly, I think that um, I can't remember the last time I gave someone a kegel or asked them to do strengthening in their home exercise program. Within most the first of the time, it's sessions. about releasing. Yeah. Most of the time, it's about releasing. So you're speaking specifically to you know. Uh, the the active woman in a bar class or a dancer, but honestly, it represents us all uh, in terms of just tension that we're carrying. And then the other thing you mentioned was keeping our abs in constantly. Mm -hmm. What that does is it discourages the diaphragm from being able to fully, fully do its job. And that tension, that excessive tension leads to tension all over the body because we start getting more into our chest. And that's really more of a fight or flight breath sort of that anxious kind of, you know, hyper, almost hyperventilating type. And that just contributes to the overall tension. So let's face it, we, we're all in New York, right? We're ambitious. A lot of us are type A's. But then add to that, you know, extreme forms of exercise where we're not considering breath. And then I'm a big proponent of thinking about what are we doing when we're not exercising? If we're lucky, we're exercising an hour a day. Okay, I can't tell you the last time I've been able to sneak that in, but that's the ideal. That's hard. I mean, I used to be a maid before my kids, you know, five, six days a week, an hour a day. Now I have certain gym days, and it's such a rigid schedule because... It's got to be. It has to be. Child care, working, you know, that balance. So I get to the gym three times a week, about an hour, and then I'm also teaching, and I take my own yoga class, but I can't find... I mean, do you count... You know, I walk back and forth to the studio. Do you count walking as exercise? In New York, yeah. I mean, that's our main mode of transportation, right? And I absolutely do. I think walking is so important. Um, So for those of us that are lucky to get that hour in, I always ask, what are we doing the other 23 hours? What are we doing in our daily habits? Or sitting sitting a lot of time at our computers. We have to be mindful, I guess, of our posture. Posture. those, Those other 23 hours daily habits are those contributing to this increased tension that we have mm-hmm. that may be affecting our pelvic floor? So we mentioned in the beginning birth and, and the process of, of, uh, of pregnancy, but that's maybe one, two, however many times we have our children. But what are things we're doing every single day that have a cumulative effect? So, you know, straining, straining in the bathroom is an example. How are we lifting up our children? How, mm-hmm. how are we dragging that stroller? How are we sitting on that long commute? How are we sitting at, at our desk? Computers, yeah. right? All of those things. How are we standing? It's funny because I used to be, when I was at Bard, I was also a painting major. And I'm so hyper flexible. And I had to bring my mind to this. But I would find myself, 
locking my knees back mm. and overarching my spine. And many people that have standing jobs, you know, a hairstylist or whatever, waitress, yes. we fall into those tendencies. I have a friend that has really bad pelvic floor dysfunction, not from having a child, but her tendency is to thrust her pelvic floor and kind of pelvic floor forward and tuck under. And she's so tight. Yes. And she told me, you know, privately, she's like, I have really bad pelvic floor issues from how I stand. And it never would have occurred to me. Yeah. Yeah. You're exactly right. It's those daily things. And that's, that's one of the biggest things that I spend probably a lot of my sessions talking about are those daily habits that can either hinder or help restore pelvic floor function. So because ideally we want the pelvic floor, in my mind, I think of it as a trampoline, right? Mm. It's springy. So it has support and, and, um, and give springy trampoline. Um, but a lot of women I'm guessing you're saying are not like that. So in Mm -hmm. general, you're saying you often see women more overly engaged than weak. That's correct. And then how, how can you tell that? Because, you know, so when I'm working with, I don't work one-on-one, I'm working with a whole class and, you know, because we can't work one-on-one with our listeners, what are some things that we can figure out if you're overly tight or overly weak? Yeah. And then how do we find balance? Yes. (laughs) Great question. I love that trampoline metaphor. I use something very similar. I talk about a spring. Um, I think the pelvic floor should be buoyant in order to support us the best it can. So for instance, let's take the example of walking off, stepping off a curb, Mm -hmm. right? You sort of step down, you want that pelvic floor to be like a spring, kind of softly come down and then be able to come back up. Mm -hmm. That's just everyday function, especially here in New York City, right? So as I said earlier, I can't remember the last time I gave someone a Kegel and this is because... And I was laughing because that's so true. <laughs> right? Yeah. Right? And this is because why would I want to strengthen something that's already tight? So you're saying the majority of the women are tight? Yes. Okay. So if if the the answer to your question is that the majority of my clients rarely need to start building strength in this area. They're over-engaged, weak, just like under-engaged is weak. Either extreme is not a, a functional muscle mm-hmm. capable of moving through full range of motion. So... Uh, I'm going to do my best to explain this via podcast. This is something I I probably do a hundred times a day, um, but it's just, I love it because it helps us understand range of motion really well. So everyone listening, Deb included, I want you to, to bend your elbow like you're halfway through a bicep curl okay, or like maybe a waiter carrying a tray. Yeah. Okay. So this would be neutral. This would be a place of rest where ideally we are right now. You and I mm-hmm. should be there right now. If we were to flex our bicep, that would be a Kegel. That would be shortening or contracting or flexing. Bring it back down to that halfway point, that neutral place. Mm-hmm. And and now extend your bicep completely so your arm is almost just hanging at your side. That would be elongation or softening. What do we need that for? Uh, fully, fully eliminating. So being able to empty our bowel and bladder. Appreciation of intercourse so sex isn't painful. Mm-hmm. And, of course, delivering our babies. Now come back up to that tight and shortened position. What do we need that for? Continence, um, you know, uh, orgasm. An orgasm is basically, you know, little mini muscle contraction. So a healthy pelvic floor would go through all three of those places. And of course, the little nuances in between. So if if you're in that middle place, you could access either end. Either way, yes. Either end. I love that analogy. This is good. So, you know... I tell my moms I want them to be in that neutral place so they can But they can find both others. That's exactly right. So if they need that continence in that moment or they need that ability when they step off a curb to sort of have that softness. When they're picking up their other child. Picking up their other child, not to overburden or overtax. Mm-hmm. And so with that abdominal holding that you mentioned earlier, 
what we're doing is, you know, the lower abdominal shares connective tissue with the pelvic floor. So mm-hmm. for those of us who maybe are a little bit self-aware after we've had our child, or maybe that's just what we've always done. We've always kind of held our, our belly in. That's adding a lot of shortening or flexion to that pelvic floor. And if that's your go-to 23, 24 hours a day, it's going to be challenging for you to find neutral. And it's certainly going to be, be challenging, challenging to, let go. to let go completely. That's exactly right. So some telltale signs, I think I think you asked um, that questionnaire that I talked to you about earlier mm-hmm. about things such as like urinary frequency. So most of us should only pee once every two to four hours, which I is... I drink a lot. Like I find on my Mondays, especially, I head to the studio and granted one of them is caffeinated. I know that makes you pee more, but yeah. I have like two huge drinks and I guzzle probably like 40 ounces while sitting there at the computer. In what time period is that? About an hour? An hour, hour, hour and a half. Yeah. So that, that's, a, that's a tricky question because absolutely you are overloading the bladder. <laughs> I know. Um, I totally am. I know that the <laughs> caffeination is yes. not going to help. But And then I find at night, once I get the kids down, I'm, I drink a big yeah, cup of tea. I'm, yeah, and it's decaf tea, but it's probably another 20 ounces. Yeah, yeah. Like, I know we're supposed to, you know, give a little each, like, hours, or like, yeah. but how do it's you hard. not? If you're, it's hard. If you can't graze on your fluid. Yeah, so that's, a, that's a great way to phrase it. Well, one thing to think about which could be helpful is not only are you overloading your bladder, so we are going to see probably some more frequency and urgency, which are usually telltale signs. What's that urgency? It's more like, you know, I just really have to pee. You really got to go, right? <laughs> so the issue with also think about it from this way, that your body can absorb all that fluid. So here you are thinking, well, I haven't gotten my, you know, 60, 70, 80 ounces of water today, but I have this moment, I'm going to guzzle 20, but the body can actually absorb all that. Right, so, so it's just going to take a little and pee the rest out. Yes. So not only is it better for your bladder to not be overloaded, <laughs> your overall, your skin, your hair, your nails, your, you know, it's all going to benefit from doing your best to sip. So I often tell moms, you know, grab a straw so that you're not guzzling, you're kind of sipping, um, whatever strategies. And there's no perfect science, but certainly taking in 20, 30 ounces in an hour, you know, you're setting it's not ideal. Up. It's not ideal. Um, so peeing six to eight times in a 24 hour period is ideal. Um, Folks under 60, you know, uh, we really shouldn't be peeing at night. Exceptions, of course, are when we're pregnant and, you know, new moms, right? We're getting up feeding our baby. So it's awesome. Sage still wakes up at 3.30 just to yell for more water. (laughs) Literally, mommy, more agua. And then I get up, I give her water, and then I'm like, I might as well pee. Should I try to avoid that? So do you actually have an urge to pee at that time? Or is it more out of habit? No, I think actually I do because I've already, I drank about 20 ounces of tea before I went to bed. Okay, so... If you weren't drinking your 20 ounces of tea before bed, I would say, yes, please don't pee at that time. But as long as you're continuing your habit of drinking so much before bed, and this is a really interesting uh, example or story, actually. So, uh, you know, our bladder is a muscle that it can, can expand, right? It can accommodate, actually, I think it's 14 ounces of fluid. That's a lot. You know, yeah. I, I've got a water bottle that I usually bring around with me. I'm lifting it right now. Uh-huh. Um, it's about 14, 15 ounces. Just to That's show moms, this, is, this yeah. is a fair amount of fluid, right? And somewhere along that, maybe halfway, 10 ounces, 9 ounces, we should get an urge. And, okay, it's time. I've expanded. I'm ready to be emptied. I'm, I'm not so comfortable. When we bypass that signaling system and we start going before we have that urge, so I call this just-in-case peeing, you know, don't know where the bathroom is going to be. Ride, just exactly. in case. Yeah. Just in case. 
over time, not overnight, not one instance, but over time, we start to repattern or change that communication between brain and bladder. So now bladder goes, our brain goes, oh, you want me to alert you when I'm only this full versus the capacity we can actually take. So that's why I asked, do you have an urge? And if you have an urge, sure, but don't do it out of habit or convenience uh, because over time we'll start to change our body's ability to accommodate fluid. So for those with young kids as you have and I have, before we go on a car ride or before we even leave the house for you know a time that I like we're on the playground, do you say, okay, time to pee? To, our, to the kids? To, yeah. That's a really tricky question. So I have to say that I don't have, I'm not a pediatric pelvic floor therapist. Right. I, know, I, I recognize that. I'm asking as someone that studies this and having young kids. Yeah. You do that. Okay, so honestly, I bring a portable potty with me. Okay. I've got one of those little collapsible things. I have that. Yeah. Yeah. And I've, so my. He's probably my, like the toilet or something like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. My son's two and he's recently been potty trained and I have to say, it is so much easier to be in public with a little boy. <laughs> oh my gosh, it really is. I can't tell you how many times we're like, oh, find a tree, find a corner. It's so amazing. I don't know what I'm going to do with Sage. She's a little girl. I'm going to have to pull that thing out and be like, here on the side of the That's street. That's what I do. Like, I'm like, Shh, you know, I become a ninja or a genie with the way that I can I can erect that thing. And I do that just because I, I want her to, to feel that urge. I want her to be aware of that bodily function and not kind of preempting it. Um, and, you know, different different strokes for everybody, but that's just kind of has, what has worked well in, with my family. Okay, then I'll, I'll hold back on the pushing my kids to feel <laughs> okay. I, I want to shift gears a little bit to the abdominal muscles, mm-hmm. another of my favorite focuses. So, you know, at PYC, we're big fans of teaching our pregnant moms to use their transverse abdominals in preparation for the pushing stage, as well as minimizing diastasis. Um, what kind of work do you do with your clients in terms of transverse abs during pregnancy, as well as postpartum? Okay, great. So the core is actually four things. We hear this word core, it's loosely talked about in the fitness world, but really what the core is, is the pelvic floor. Mm-hmm. It's the low abs, transversus abdominis. We'll call them TA. That's between our belly button and our pubic bone. It's the diaphragm, Mm -hmm. the respiratory muscle. And then some spinal muscles along the back of our body. And all those ones. I know. I'm an an anatomy geek. Yeah. I'm very excited about these. (laughs) Yeah. I'm really, I am really in good company. So those four work, when they work together, it's so robust. Mm -hmm. And um, we want to be able to engage those low abs between the the strength of the TA and our contractions, right? This is, this is how our baby comes out. What's really interesting about that though, is simultaneously we want that pelvic floor to be soft and to be open. And that's why when we teach postnatally, we teach transverse pelvic floor. I usually do it with them on their back with their hips elevated to take some of the weight off their pelvic floor. That's great. I learned that from a PT. Um, And then I have them take the block away and do the transverse abdominals with the exhale. And then I bring it together. However, in prenatal, we never bring it together because if they're trying to use, utilize their transverse abdominals to push their baby down, I don't want them to associate that with engage the pelvic floor. So we separate that. Yeah. I will tell you that clinically I've seen that that's, it's a challenge to wrap your head around separating them if we're not even sure how they work together. Right. So I love that you guys are doing that. You're probably the only yoga studio I've ever met. Well, I mean, it I might be more in theory than in actuality, but we're trying to teach them don't consciously engage your pelvic floor yeah. if we're thinking about pushing. Yes. For 
pushing, we want the pelvic floor to be more of a relaxed state, which is right. why we also focus on relaxing yes. the neck and the jaw. Yes, exactly. So we don't clench and tighten and tighten everything up. Right, because there certainly is a correlation between those two things. So, you know, I often say, um, you know, I spend time with a mom talking to them about how they work together um, and just really brief rundown. I know we've already talked about this, but inhale, belly gets big, pelvic floor responds to that pressure. It softens millimeters, right? Exhale, belly flattens, pelvic floor comes back up to that mm-hmm. neutral, that, that waiter's carrying the tray position mm-hmm. we talked about. So if that's what we need, that's what we do in everyday life. And delivery is that one time or labor is that one time those two things don't work together. I always trust, I always tell my moms, trust their body, their body, your body knows what to do. And I love that you're having this conversation with them because I'm not sure women really get this information many places. And so while they're not able to probably physically uh, practice it because they do work so well together, they're wrapping their mind around it. Right. So that's it. Like it may not actually separate, but at least consciously they're thinking when I push, I'm going to use my abs. I'm going to try to relax my pelvic floor. That's exactly right. And that's, that's how we're going to really see minimal, minimal trauma, you know, minimal discomfort that's happening because that, that, that outlet is, is softening for our baby to come out, especially if they already had an over-engaged pelvic floor Mm -hmm. before they got pregnant and they, they didn't know about it. So in that moment, great opportunity to be thinking about what it would mean to soften that part of our body. And I also recognize for some women, they're saying, oh, I am engaging my abs while I'm trying to do my pelvic floor, vice versa. So then we'll have, um, especially if we're working pelvic floor and their abs are trying to help out because they are, you know, working in concert most of the time, you know, normal life, except in preparation for birth. I have them do like a sideline or even child's pose so that their abs are in a more softened state. That sound like a good idea? Yeah, I think that sounds cool. great. All right, so let's keep talking about diastasis and abdominals because it's an obs- another of my obsessions. So what do you recommend for women to avoid diastasis? I have my own list as a yoga teacher, mm-hmm. but I'm certainly curious of, of your approach to that. So something I've just started doing uh, that I'm really excited about is I'm using ultrasound, so real-time ultrasound, as a way to check if my moms are using their TA or if they're or substituting with obliques, <laughs> internal and external obliques, which is... I have a feeling you're going that direction. <laughs> <laughs> yes. This is a really important distinction to make whether or not you're using TA or the obliques. Because if you want long-term support to your abs, it's the difference between engaging your superficial muscle system that may cinch your waist, but doesn't improve function, mm-hmm. and engaging the deep core muscles, which may narrow the waist, but will definitely uh, improve function. So I'm using the same ultrasound machine that you probably used when you went to your midwife or your OB to get your first glimpse of your baby. But this time what I'm looking for is the muscles, the layers of ab muscles, the internal obliques, the external obliques, and the transversus to see which ones are firing. Which I ones had are firing. this done. Did so, you? Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and so here I was walking and thinking, I know what I'm doing. And what I realized is I was so overusing my oblique. So they retaught me how to awesome. really get with the transverse. And so much, it's about the breath. It's not about this deep conscious. For me, this is what I think I was You're overly exactly right. engaging consciously as opposed to the way we teach the transfers is think about exhaling through a small straw and really emptying, not holding the breath, but really emptying. And it's that deep exhalation that's going to engage the transfers. What I used to do is like engage, engage. And the conscious engage was the obliques. And so I had to be taught. And then I 
from that, I retaught my students as well as the teachers at the studio because, you know, we all we only know what we know. That's right. And so it was kind of a, a big highlight when they said, you're actually using your obliques. Yeah. Like, Lord. I'm like, seriously? <laughs> well, you know, the thing is that after we've had our children, we, we sometimes disengage. We can't really find that, that true deep system, assuming we knew what it felt like to engage it before we had our children. Mm-hmm. And part of it is that stretching we talked about, sort of the, the nerves changing, you know. And so it's a real opportunity to connect again and to recognize the difference between obliques and TA. Because mm-hmm. likely before you had your kids, it probably didn't matter so much. They both look really darn good once you've, <laughs> once you've strengthened them. But we got to come back to function. We got to right. come back to what's going to support us. Because the other thing I talk about with my moms a lot is menopause, perimenopause, which mm-hmm. is our next great hormonal shift. And often the things that that maybe we put aside now that we're experiencing whether it's whether it's public floor function or otherwise it may come up i tell my postpartum moms that because i've read a study somewhere that said the estrogen level while breastfeeding postpartum matches that of menopause and i was floored to see that i'm like that is low that's low and so what does that look like in the pelvic floor it looks like a dry Weak, a weak sort of atrophy yeah. pelvic floor that's that's not capable of moving through that full range of motion, providing support to those internal organs, and we're dry, which mm-hmm. certainly isn't comfortable. So you're exactly right. So that's a glimpse. But now, when when we're older, we have some deconditioning going on. You know, some some other things happening. So now is the opportunity when you become aware of this part of your body. I think it's a really positive thing that now. You can sort of wake, wake wake up, open your eyes, and go. This is a lifelong pursuit to care for my body, mm-hmm. and this beautiful baby is was that gateway, was that opportunity for me to figure out. All right, so what's really going on down there? What's the function, and and how can I correctly use my low abs versus use my obliques to help me, you know, function the best that I can? So I, I told I'm the one that deviated us talking about my obliques and transfer. So what are some of the things that women can do to mm-hmm. avoid diastasis? So what's important to know is that most women have diastasis. Right. Yes, there's going to be some degree of it, but yes. we can make it worse for ourselves. That's exactly right. And that it's only at about four weeks postpartum that if we still have it, it's technically diastasis. And diastasis is um, two point. I think it's two point seven five centimeters. If, if so, I always measure the fingers. How many yes, fingers is that? That's perfect. So we roughly say that a finger is a centimeter. So if when you're checking your mom's, if it's, I would say let's ballpark it at three. Oh, good. Okay, so that's what I was saying. If it's like three or more, go see a PT. Yes, that's perfect. One and two, completely normal. Um, nothing to worry about. And again, that critical window is four weeks plus, maybe even closer to six weeks. Of course, if we're breastfeeding with that decrease of estrogen, not only are we drier and our muscles are thinner, but you know, we still have a lot of other hormones that are kind of changing stability. So Mm -hmm. it's also possible that connective tissue in our abs are also a little bit softer. So again, you know, um, it's going to be different for every woman, but four weeks is a good ballpark. Um, and the best thing we can do to help minimize, avoid um, diastasis recti is to really understand that true core. So to, to not substitute with obliques, um, really thinking of the core as sort of that zipper from the bottom up um, so that you can create tension across the two sides. Because that's really what it's about, is being able to not sort of, when you touch it, worry about so much about how far apart it is, but is it is it soft? Mm-hmm. Is it is it is it gooey? You know, can you feel some organs below there? Uh, that's really what dysfunction is. Right. And so things that I often ask mom to moms to start doing at home, you know, to start thinking about things is, um, what are you doing in everyday life? 
uh, sorry, I probably sound like a broken record, but I think that's so important to think about everyday habits. So things like, how are you sitting up? How are you getting out of bed? Yeah, you're jackknifing up. Exactly. Which just puts so much, you know, um, uh, pressure, pressure, pressure right on that, that abdomen area. You know, lifting anything, toddlers included, our trash strollers. bags, groceries, strollers up our walk-up buildings. You know, how we don't want to bear down on on the pelvic floor and on the abs for support, but we right. actually want to draw in. And of course, as we mentioned earlier, I want that happening on the exhale. Going back to that bicep example, mm-hmm. you know, if you're in that neutral inhale, pelvic floor softens, exhale, contract, and then take on that activity, pick up your toddler at that point, get out of bed, lift up that, that stroller, which will really help to, um, to engage the true core and provide that stability, which will later down the road help with reduction of diastasis. So one thing I forgot to mention, so for listeners, thank you for patience, what I didn't actually say is that diastasis recti is the separation of the rectus abdominals, your six-pack muscles. And I'm going to add, um, Lindsay had a fantastic list, I'm going to add a little bit of my list as a yoga teacher Please. that we've seen. Um over doing abdominals like a pose like navasana boat pose so that's where the body is in basically like a v the hips are down but the chest and the legs are up that belly tends to bulge uh deep back bends as well because the belly's already extended and natural diastasis is there but we're for these deep back bends that's overstretching those abdominals even further and deep twists and one that i really start to think about in the last few years is full plank and chaturanga because not only can the lower back like overly sway because all that weight is being mm-hmm. pulled, but then there's that weight downward while the abdominals are contracting. And usually it's going to over-engage the obliques, which will pull the rectus even further apart. Mm-hmm. And so um, for my students out there, if you are doing a lot of general yoga, just be mindful not to do those in your open level class because it's something that may not commonly be known. And, you know, if the finger, if you have, you know, three, four fingers, five fingers, six fingers, diastasis, you can definitely work with a PT. But at some point, um, I've had women that need to require surgery to bring them back together. And to my understanding, please correct me if I'm wrong, it's because the linea alba, the connective tissue between the two parts has just lost its tension. Is that correct? That's exactly right. So, you know, I don't like to think about how far apart the the center line is, but more can it generate tension. And that's exactly right. That's a, that's a case where a surgical um, procedure, I think it's called, um, what is it called? Abdomino, abdominoplasty, something like I this. I think something, yeah. In, in it's not a tummy tuck. It's different. Like yes. Tummy tuck, I think they're trying to just get rid of skin and fat skin maybe? and fat i, I think haven't i really looked into that yeah i you know i haven't either but i think that basically you know you've gone through your conservative you know programs you've tried pt you know the art the joint system all of the main systems are intact but that tension just can't regenerate and so you know 66 percent of these women also have a pelvic floor dysfunction uh, the 66 percent of the women who have who have diastasis and that, and that makes sense because it's all about connective tissue right it's all about that relationship to be able to build tension so i think that that if you know it's wider than 2.75 centimeters and the two sides just aren't coordinating together they're not able to generate that tension and again what that would mean if you take your hand and just kind of bring it across that center line in your abdomen do you feel like it's a cliff that your hand is kind of going in? Or when you do a very low level pelvic floor engagement on the exhale, do you feel like 
your abdominal wall has the ability to support what's going on underneath it. It's interesting. In class, I, I can see literally the, the divot in the two sides of some women. They're really yeah. thin, yeah. and they can do like a little crunch like I can get my hand and see tone the muscles, and you can really see the drop between yeah. the two sides. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you have given an incredible amount of information. Is there any last thing I didn't get to that you want to add? No, I think that I, you know, this topic is near and dear to my heart. I feel like, you know, the more we can spread positive, accurate information about the pelvic floor, you know, it's, it's a good thing. It's a good thing that we're talking about this. I love, I love that you've given me this opportunity. I love the, the continuing ed opportunities that, that I think in general, women are demanding these days. And I think that can only empower us to take care of ourselves better, to, to not be scared, to not be fearful of these really natural processes that are happening to our mm-hmm. body. And with that information, you know, we can, we can be a stronger, better, healthier, balanced. I think it all comes back to balance. That's exactly <laughs> right. That's exactly right. Oh, well, thank you so much, Lindsay. And so for those listening, I'm going to have, um, on our notes for the podcast, um, the website for Lindsay at functional pelvis, and you'll get a chance to see everything. Um, and her questionnaire can also be there. So you can take a look at the questionnaire and that will give you some information as well as to the state of your pelvic floor and your abdominal muscles. So thank you guys so much for listening. Um, I'm always asking you guys to take a moment. Um, oh yeah. Oh, totally forgot. I'm going to, before I get back to what I was about to say about rating us on iTunes, we actually have a four minute abdominal video. If you go to our website and it's all about the transverse abdominals, awesome. one of my obsessions. If you go, <laughs> thank you. If you go to our website and sign up for our newsletter, that's automatically sent to you. So you can check out what I meant by that abdominal toning, uh, the idea of blowing up through a straw, engaging the transverse abdominals. Um, also, if you enjoyed today's podcast or any of the other podcasts, please go to iTunes or Stitcher and review and rate us. Hopefully you loved it and you're giving us five stars. Um, and then also you can check out a ton of our other videos on YouTube. All right, until next time. Thank you so much for listening and I appreciate you joining us. All right. Take care. Namaste. This has been an episode of Yoga Birth Babies produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Thanks for listening.